All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for being here with us. Um, we're jumping into a sermon about Thanksgiving with the Thanksgiving season coming up um, after we finish our fall campaigns. So if you want to turn with me to First Thessalonians um, chapter 5, that is the scripture that we will be focusing on today. And specifically, we're going to look at verse 16 through 18. And um, the Apostle Paul is encouraging this church um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, One of the most common questions I feel like I get in ministry is people asking, um, you know, what is God's will for my life? Or what does it look like to accomplish God's will and what he's called me to do? And in a very simple way and straightforward way, we find that right here in First Thessalonians, that God's will um, for each and every one of us today is to rejoice always, is to pray without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks. This is what God's designed us for. This is what he's called us to. But when we look at how simple this is, um, why do you think it's so hard to do this? To rejoice in everything, to be thankful all the time, and to remain in prayer. When you think of the word thankfulness or just the concept of thankfulness, you know, what makes biblical thankfulness and what Christ's calling us to do different than maybe um, other types of thankfulness? And what I mean by that is if you study um, Islam, if you study just various philosophies, if you study Hinduism, if you study um, the New Age movement that's coming out, every single religion talks about thankfulness. And so what makes what Jesus is talking about in his word and what he's called us to in thankfulness any different than every other um, religion or philosophy that talks about thankfulness? Or is thankfulness just something that's generically good? And what I believe that we're going to see in this scripture today is there's three things that make um, Christian thankfulness different than any sort of other thankfulness or positive thinking or other terms that we may hear around this, this concept And that is number one is an eternal perspective. In order to be truly thankful in the way God has designed us to be thankful, we have to have an eternal perspective and not just view our life through our own lens and our circumstances. Number two, our thanksgiving has to be rooted in truth. It can't just be um, a self-help encouragement of you're doing awesome and things are gonna turn out okay. There's always a positive in every negative because those things aren't always true. And you can think that way for a while, but when rubber really meets the road, that type of thankfulness gives way and we become discouraged or critical. So our thankfulness has to be rooted in truth. And number three, our thankfulness has to be empowered and motivated by the love of God and through the Holy Spirit. And the reason I came up with those three things was studying not just um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, but by looking at the chapter of 1 Thessalonians 5, but also the book. And the reason I say that is part of my um, job or mission as a discipleship pastor is to encourage us as a body to be reading um, your Bible. And when we read our Bible, it can't just be a couple verses that encourage us, but it needs to be um, in context of the way that God has written um, the scripture. And so just so you guys know, when I prepare for this sermon, um, I read the whole book of of 1 Thessalonians because this is a letter um, that Paul was writing to a church. And imagine you wrote me a four-page letter of what you thought about my preaching and what you think about me. And I were to read this um, letter, but I only read two sentences right in the middle of the letter. 
I mean, I could make that say whatever I wanted to say, but if I didn't get the context of what was being said in that whole letter, I could really misinterpret what you're saying. And the same is true with the Bible, is that we need to see what, what is Paul getting at here in verse 16, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, um, for this is the will of God for us. In order to really grab hold of what he's saying, we need to see what he's saying in light of the chapter and in light of the book. And the reason I say this is because a lot of times I think we can read the Bible and we can be discouraged or sometimes we can feel lost and feel like it's complicated. And I just want to encourage you that I've never met anyone who sat down and read the Bible for the first time and thought, man, this makes total sense. And I know exactly how to study the Bible. I don't need any help and I don't need anybody to show me how to do it. And I just read it and I get it. That every single person I've talked to that knows a lot about the scripture and knows God through his word was helped. They they were helped to learn how to read the Bible, but they also were consistent and disciplined in reading the scripture. So I just want to encourage you that no matter how good a sermon is or discipleship is or um, life group or a sermon on YouTube that you hear, nothing can replace your edification and growth in Christ like your own um, study and reading of the word and prayer before God. And again, the reason I say this is because these three things of an eternal perspective, truth and the love of God empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a thankful life, I don't believe my opinion. I believe this is exactly what the word of God says in First Thessalonians chapter 5 that God is encouraging us, exhorting us, and commanding us to do in order to live a thankful life. But the good news is, is um, that's up for you guys to test, to discern if that's true or not by your knowledge of the scripture. That um, if you don't know why we're called Mitchell Berean, um, the Bereans were a group of people in the book of Acts where Paul was preaching the gospel. And after Paul got done preaching the gospel, they said they are, the book of Acts says they got together and they tested, was Paul, what he was saying, was it true according to the scripture? So the whole reason we are called Mitchell Berean, the Bereans, the Bereans were a group of people who tested what was being taught, whether or not it was true, not by what their pastor said, not by what their mom taught them, but what they knew for certain from the scriptures from their own study. So I just want to encourage us as we get into this um, in this today is to really in our own um, study of the scripture look beyond of what may be the one or two verses that encourage us but to really develop a study of the Bible. And for those of you who want to take me up on this challenge I have a homework assignment. Um, for anybody who would like to take me up on this I have them um, at the front of the um, sanctuary as you're leaving. I can hand them to you. Um, I've had more people take me up on this than I thought I was going to so I had to print some more copies. But um, if you want to study deeper what we talk about today, um, I have those for you all. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're not already there, um, we'll read verse 1 and 2. And the apostle Paul says through the Holy Spirit, he says this, but concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So the Apostle Paul had been to this church, he'd established this church. And what he talks about of not needing to tell them about the times or seasons is because this church knew that Jesus Christ would come as a thief in the night. And how does a thief come to rob you? Does he tell you, hey, I'm going to be at your house on Thursday at 2 a.m. and I'm going to rob you? 
That's not what a thief does. He comes when you're not expecting it. And so what Paul is saying to the church is we're not going to know exactly when Jesus Christ is going to come back. And I know I've met so many people who are so hung up on eschatology and the coming of Christ and the end of times that they become totally distracted. And at some level, that's what was happening to the Thessalonica or the church at Thessalonica was they were getting so distracted by all the things that were happening in their culture. They were losing sight of what their purpose was. And because they were losing sight of their purpose, they weren't glorifying God and knowing God in the way that he had called them to. So Paul was saying, don't get distracted by all the things that are happening of wondering, is um, the coronavirus vaccine going to be the mark of the beast and all the different things that get thrown out there, you know, in Colorado, that was a big deal when we were um, there of people worried about all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be educated politically, but that cannot be what consumes us. What consumes us should be Jesus Christ could return at any time. Jesus Christ could return today. Jesus Christ could return tomorrow, that we should live as if we are ready for Christ to return at any day and we are ready to enter into eternity with him. But within this, we have to recognize that our purpose is to, um, what Jesus says is the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. See, when exactly Jesus Christ is coming back is not gonna change whether or not today I'm gonna love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength. There is nothing that Joe Biden or gas prices can do to make me not love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my, and all my strength, all my mind. And so when Paul is saying, don't get caught up in the times and seasons and trying to figure out all these things, but just know our our job as believers is to have an eternal perspective. What's going to last for eternity? And are we ready when eternity comes? Um, one thing that happens when we are not um, living with an eternal perspective is we can get bitter. And I want you to look at Hebrews 12 because there's a lot of things in this life if we're focused on our circumstances that are going to weigh us down. And we're going to have a lot of reason to be bittered and discouraged. But this is what happens when bitterness starts to creep into our life. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, um, verse 12 through 15. He says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. So I just want to encourage you, a lot of times what chokes out our thanksgiving, our joy in the Lord is being too earthly minded, being too caught up in what's happening right in front of us and what's happening in our country, what's happening um, with gas prices that we end up becoming embittered. We become embittered about to other people. We become embittered maybe even to our church or to our community. And as a result, this chokes out the joy and the thankfulness that he, we have with Christ. And eventually it says we can def, it can defile us. But the second thing that a, an eternal perspective does in regards to thanksgiving is it changes our definition of good. In Romans 8.28, um, you can turn there if you want. It's a famous scripture that says, all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, this scripture has bothered me a couple times when things aren't going well in my life and things are, are causing suffering and there's pain and there's confusion in my life. But yet this scripture says, all right, Luke, all things work for good. You know, just be positive. 
But there is a shift of what do we define as good. And for me, what I have found is anything that lines up with my purpose, which is to love God, which is to know God, which is to glorify God, which is to serve God, which is to to advance the gospel, anything that helps me do that is good. And all of a sudden, I can have a lot of reasons to be thankful, even when things are hard and things are difficult and things don't turn out the way that I'd like them to. I want you to think about the Apostle Peter for a second. Um, what do you think were the two greatest things that happened um, for Peter's purpose in his life? If you were to think about the Apostle Peter's life for a second. I believe that two of them, one was um, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I think in that moment, not only was Peter's sins paid for, but Peter realized how weak he was. Peter thought he was the macho apostle who would never turn away from Jesus and he would die for Christ, yet he denied him three times. That in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Peter recognized his own weakness. That was an event that we would call as good. That was an event from Peter's perspective that he was said was good. But ultimately, that was the best thing that could have happened to Peter for his eternity and for his good on, in this life in ministry and advancing the gospel. The second thing that I think was critical in Peter's life is when Jesus confronted him and asked him, Peter, do you love me? I guarantee you that was a very uncomfortable conversation for Peter, that Peter had let down the Messiah, this guy that he did love, and by his own actions had shown him that he didn't love him as much as he maybe had thought he, he did. See, both of those things would have been painful, hard things for Peter to go to, but ultimately those things were working together for his good and for his glory. And so in order for us to get to verse 16 about um, living with thankfulness and living in prayer and living um, with rejoicing hearts, we need to first have an eternal perspective, realizing Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. And are we focused on our circumstances or ultimately are we focused on our purpose, which is to glorify God, to know him, to love him, and to serve him. So the scripture continues in um, 1 Thessalonians. Not there, I gotta turn back real quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse three. He says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness so that, they, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So this phrase, he says, they say peace and safety. And this goes back to my first point is what makes biblical Christianity and biblical thankfulness different than other messages that we hear in the world. And during this time, um, this was a phrase that was very common in the Old Testament. So if you take me up in your homework, um, this phrase, peace and safety, is used a lot in the prophets. I'm just going to list the cross-references. We're not going to read all these. But um, this phrase is used in Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 8, Lamentations chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 13, Micah chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 13, Second Peter chapter 3, and Revelation chapter 6. And a scripture that really um, explains this well that we're going to look at together is Jeremiah chapter 14. 11 through 16. What is he talking about when they, he says, they say peace and safety when sudden destruction comes. So if you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 14, be on your screen as well. And I'm reading from New King James if you guys are following along in your Bible. It's Jeremiah chapter 14, 
verse 11. He says, Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, you shall not have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name, and I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesied to you a false vision. Divination is a worthless thing and the deceit of their own heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy my name, whom I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By the sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. See, God had sent a message through his prophets of that the, the nation of Israel needed to repent. But there was other people saying, oh, you don't really need to change your way. The day of the Lord really isn't urgent, that you can just enjoy what you're doing and probably gave them things that they could be thankful of. And if you read some of those cross references and other parts of the scripture, it actually says these false prophets provided help for the moment. That what they were saying actually encouraged the Israelites for the moment, but it wasn't rooted in truth so that it didn't last. And so for you and I, when we are thinking about the things that bring us joy, the things that bring us um, thanksgiving in our life, what are those rooted in? What are you listening to? What's encouraging you? What are you building the foundation of your life on? Because in this case, the prophets in Israel um, were using scripture, they were using the law, but yet it wasn't in the context or in the power in which God had called them to share it. So our thanksgiving not only has to be within an internal perspective, but our thanksgiving does have to be rooted in truth. Are we being encouraged? Are we putting our hope in things that are actually true? And this is part of the reason why we do um, the classes that we choose to do during the um, 9.30 Sunday school hour. This isn't just to um, be busy or to do things, but our goal in those classes to help equip um, our congregation with the ability to discern and test the scriptures for yourself so you can understand when someone's saying, peace and safety, everything's gonna be great. When in reality, that's not true because you know the scriptures and you can discern for yourself um, what is true. And we're having a new class um, in January, I'm studying through the book of Romans. Um, Elder Jamie and Judd Martin are gonna be teaching through that class and going line by line through the book of Romans and helping um, the congregation learn how to study the Bible as well as how to use the book of Romans in the context of discipleship. So that's a class that'll be coming up. We'll have our other core classes but really encourage um, you if you're not quite sure how to study your Bible or you don't feel real confident to be able to discern what's true from what's not true that you would um, consider jumping in one of those classes. Um, We even have our Pathfinder class, which is just a four-week class. We did the first one today, um, but that is online. If you go to mitchellbrian.com slash equip, you could catch that first class. It was recorded and it's specifically about how do we study the word and how do we know what is true for sure. If you turn with me back to 1 Thessalonians, these guys were saying again, peace and safety, um, you don't have to worry about it, but Paul is saying that sudden destruction will come upon them, not only in the trials of this life, but ultimately in the judgment of the Lord, and it'll be like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Um, Now, I don't know how many of you have either had a baby or watched your wife give birth to a baby. I've only got to do this once, of get to see um, Sarah have a baby, and I remember she was starting to get in some pain, 
Um, and so we're like, oh man, should we go to the doctor? Because we don't know. It's, you know, the first baby. You don't know when you really go to the hospital. So we drive to the hospital and, you know, they hook her up to all this stuff. And we're like thinking, you know, the baby is going to come any minute. And um, then they're like, ah, oh, you, guys, you guys can go home. And we're like, oh, we got to go home. And they're like, yeah, like just let us know when the pain gets worse. And we're like, well, how do we know when it gets worse? And the nurse just said, you'll know. And so eventually, um, about three hours later, we're at home and, you know, we're just kind of walking around the house and Sarah just like goes down. You know, all of a sudden the real birth pains just hit her out of nowhere, you know. And that's the example that he's giving, that when we aren't rooted in truth, we're not rooted in eternal perspective. All of a sudden the day of the Lord comes and it's like pain on a pregnant woman that it hits you and there's no escape. Back then there was no epidurals. You couldn't go to the hospital and escape the pregnancy pain, but that pain was there and was there to stay until the baby came. And so Paul is saying, you know, you can, you can put off the confrontation of what's really true and deal what's in our heart, but eventually the truth of God and the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and those who are not ready, um, pain will overtake them like pain of, the, of a pregnant woman. But the good news is for us, he's saying it shouldn't have to be that way, that the return of Christ shouldn't be a threat to the church, but actually should be something that encourages us and lifts us up as if it is our wedding day. Um, and I think that's what's, what's really a cool analogy is in Ephesians chapter 5, um, Paul's talking about the, the coming together of a man and a woman um, in marriage. And at the end of that section, he talks about the man's role, he talks about the woman's role. But at the end, he says, this is a great mystery, but I talk in regards to the church. That the whole purpose of marriage isn't necessarily for marriage, but it's to give us a, a, a picture of us in Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. If um, a young couple, before they're going to get married, and they've been abstaining from um, having sex, and they've been um, doing things the way that God has, has called them to do, and the wedding day is getting approached, or is approaching, what happens is they're excited. They're excited to come together and to experience that um, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And did you know that is supposed to be a representation of how we feel about Christ's return, of that, that return of him. He talks about coming for his bride and having a little wedding ceremony in heaven, that the, the passion and the excitement that a couple has in coming together in marriage should be the same anticipation and encouragement that the church has in thinking about the return of Christ. Again, this eternal perspective, we can have that joy, we can have that thankfulness for our salvation no matter what is going on around us. And in verse 7, um, the Apostle Paul continues by saying, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So again, part of this comfort and, and edification is having our minds set on Jesus Christ's return, being ready for it. But this eternal um, perspective, like he talks about here, it leads us to living a life that's different than other people. Because we're excited, because we're ready for Christ's return, he says we don't sleep how others sleep. And what he's talking about is spiritually. We're not lethargic and um, literally asleep. When you're asleep, you're alive, but you're not, um, it's hard to listen to a good sermon while you're sleeping. You're probably not gonna remember much of it if you fall asleep um, while I'm teaching that there's an element of we should, because of the return of Christ, be aware and vigilant when it comes to spiritual things. Secondly, he says that um, we should be sober. This doesn't just mean um, through substance abuse or addictions, but sobriety can even 
compared to our infatuation with things of the world. If we are so filled with the pleasures and desires and cares of this world, we have no more appetite for the things of Christ. And the way that I look at it is if I had an awesome steak dinner with potatoes and everyone likes steak and potatoes in Nebraska. And if it's about to eat this awesome steak and potato meal, but before I ate it, I had five Snicker bars. Um, I'm probably not gonna feel very good and I'm probably not gonna wanna eat any of my dinner. And the same thing is true if we are always... um, setting our focus and our affections and everything on entertainment and joy and momentary satisfaction in the things of the world, we're going to have no time, we're going to have no energy, and we're going to have no appetite to really be filled with the things of the Lord. But because we're not focused on the things of this life, but we're focused on the things of eternity, and we know that Jesus Christ is coming as a thief in the night, therefore we live in a way that is different than the world. I want to turn to Luke chapter 12, that I think has a great picture of this. Um, in Jesus' return, Luke 12, verse 35. He says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. When he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of those servants if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not expect. And I love this scripture because when Jesus comes back and for those who have repented of their sins, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he's not coming back as pain of a pregnant woman. He's not coming back to destroy us or to scold us, but he's coming back to actually serve us. He's coming back to lay out a table and and have this awesome meal. And when we should be the ones serving him, when we should be the ones being in awe of him, he's actually bringing us into his presence, into his fellowship, that we can enjoy intimacy with him forever. That it seems like it could be, almost to me, would seem uncomfortable. That if Jesus Christ walked in this room, I feel uncomfortable him putting out the table and him feeding me, I feel like, man, I should be doing something for him. But that is the beauty of grace, that God loves us by grace, that we would receive him by, through faith, that we could really enjoy his love. If you turn with me to Philippians um, chapter two, there's one more aspect of this as we're waiting for the return of Christ and we're focused on eternal things, we're grounded in truth um, that will set us apart as believers. And it's very simple and we can all start doing it today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So what's one way according to this scripture, that as believers, we can stand out as lights in the midst of a dark world or as children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's not complaining. It's not disputing. 
But how often, man, we're complaining about the gas prices, we're complaining about the president, we're complaining maybe about our church, we're complaining about our work. There's so many things we can complain about because we're focused on temporal things. We're focused on this life instead of focusing on ultimately glorifying God and what he has for us in eternity. And if you work in a secular environment, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What do your coworkers do the most around the water cooler? You complain. And for me, I mean, I think back on um, playing football in college. I mean, guys were always complaining about the coaches, always complaining about the play calling. You guys maybe can relate to that if you're watching Nebraska football right now. There's, we are people who will complain by nature unless we have an internal perspective, unless we are actively setting our mind on the things of Christ and thanking him, not just for temporal things, but ultimately for eternal things that can stay the test of time, even when hardship comes, even when trial comes, even when we would be sick or we lose a family member, that we could find peace and joy and contentment always, like the scripture says, with an eternal mindset. So we'll finish the second half of this chapter pretty quick. He says in verse 12, and we urge you brothers to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake be at peace among yourselves. Now, this is, a, I think, a great scripture of honoring, encouraging those who lead us spiritually. Now, encouraging and honoring those who lead you spiritually, your pastors, your elders, doesn't mean agreeing with everything they say. It doesn't mean liking everything they do. But it means having their best interest at heart, loving them, um, serving them. And for me, one of, the, one of the greatest things, the two things that are the biggest encouragements to me as a preacher is, one, if I preach a message um, and somebody comes back the next week and they actually did it. You know, they said, hey, you know, this is what you taught last week. And this really encouraged me, impacted me. I went out and I asked for someone's forgiveness or I shared the gospel or, you know, whatever the testimony is, that's encouraging because people are doing the word. I don't teach so people know new things, but that we would actually be transformed um, by Christ. But the second thing that I love is when people would challenge me. If say, hey, you know, you said this and I was reading the Bible and I see this scripture over here. I'm not quite sure if I agree with you. And there's a challenge. And in that, I grow, that person grows, and hopefully we can both grow up in the truth. And so honoring um, your leaders, I think this gets um, misinterpreted sometimes in church. If we can get so critical and discouraged within church, and we shouldn't have to be that way. We can actively challenge leaders and encourage leaders and be for leaders without having to... um, just be a doormat and just accept everything that's coming across the pulpit. But we want our church to be active in testing the truth also while encouraging us um, as well. Continuing in the church in verse 14, he says, now we exhort you brothers, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and, and for all. What both of these sections have in common is that we must be motivated by love. If you're motivated by anything else but the love of God, man, we're gonna burn out. That, that we can be motivated because we're excited or we wanna help somebody, but eventually without the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us, um, we will run out, out of gas when we're dealing with the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And when we, we look at this scripture, when he says warn um, the idol, ultimately what was happening in Thessalonica is there were some people who they didn't want to work and they wanted the church to support them and they wanted other people to pay their bills. And so part of this is you need to work. But the other part was, is people being lazy spiritually. And part of what we need to have when we have our minds focused on the truth and eternal perspective and love, we are going to be warning and encouraging and exhorting those who become lazy in their faith. Number two was to comfort 
those who are faint-hearted. And this basically means to be of low morale or um, to be disheartened spiritually. And for those people that we need to, to be able to comfort them in a way that isn't just preaching at them, but um, the Greek here actually talks about literally just being physically close to somebody. And so when you are comforting someone who is discouraged, despairing in their faith, sometimes the last thing they need you to do is quote them a thousand scriptures. Sometimes what they need you to do is sit there with them, listen to them, let, you, let, let, let them know that you love them, that you're there for them, and that can uphold them in their faith. And finally, he says to uphold the weak. And I think about this of, um, in the Greek, it means to literally support or carry someone. And I think of like a um, war movie where guys are running, their bullets are flying and somebody gets hit by the bullet, right? And the one soldier turns around and goes back and gets the other guy, doesn't just leave him there to die, but throws him on his shoulder and the bullets are, are going past him. That, that is how the body of Christ should be, that those we see around us that are suffering, that are backsliding in their faith, maybe have stopped coming to church, not just discrediting them of, oh, they're just struggling or, oh, they're not taking their relationship with Christ seriously, but to truly put their needs above ourselves and to uphold them. And if we do this with an eternal perspective, with truth and with the love of God, these are things we're gonna be thankful to do. We're gonna have joy in upholding um, the weak and comforting the people who are, who are low and, and warning those who are idle. We're gonna find that as a joyful thing that we get to do for Christ. But if we're not motivated by the love of God, we're not motivated by an eternal perspective, ultimately those things will become burdens. We will get irritated and embittered embittered at those around us who are, who are struggling. So now we get to the main point of what we are, we're talking about today, verse 16. Now that we have an eternal perspective, now that we um, are rooted in love, now that we're living a different life, now that we are rooted in truth, now we can rejoice always, we can pray without ceasing, and everything we can give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Three just quick practical things, rejoicing, having joy in our life. This might be easier for some of the um, girls in the room than the guys, but um, I encourage you to sing, to have a time of, the Lord, time of your day where you actually sing to the Lord. I know for me, when I take time to actually worship to God by myself, it makes a huge difference in my thankfulness and my joy in the Lord throughout the week. You might f- feel funny sitting down there and singing to the Lord, but I'm telling you, the Bible, it's actually a command. Colossians says to sing praises to the Lord and also to sing to one another. So it's one thing to all sing in church, but it's another thing to really take time in our day and worship God in song. Number two, to pray without ceasing. Um, this doesn't mean to literally just speak words all the time. I've heard this preached as a very spiritual thing of you need to be praying constantly. And really um, in the Greek, he's saying to pray without intervals and so, or intermissions. And so the idea would be don't go 24 hours without praying. Don't go 12 hours without praying. That we should be praying throughout our day, worshiping God, thanking God, and being concerned of even praying for other people. But it doesn't mean you have to literally be praying um, every second of every day. And then finally, to give thanks that no matter what's happening, because we have an eternal perspective, we can thank God that he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. purpose. Right after this, we see again the importance. Um, he's kind of redundant in some ways of coming back to our thankfulness being rooted in truth. Verse 19, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good abstain from every form of evil. See, the thing that gives us a power to, to live a thankful life is the Holy Spirit. But when we're living in sin, when we aren't in the word of God, um, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life can be quenched. Doesn't mean he's gone, but that power and that, that um, presence of the Holy Spirit can be quenched 
in our life. He says, do not despise prophecies of having a high view of the word of God, of, of investing in the word of God and what he is calling us to do is really the main point of prophecy is the scripture. Um, but then again, I know I've been redundant on this one too, but test all things. Don't just take it because it's been said, but take it to the word of God yourself and find that what you are doing and what you are being thankful for is actually rooted in the truth and to abstain from every form of evil. So to finish um, today, I'll invite the worship team up if they're in here yet. They might not be in here yet, which is all right. I can go longer, right? Um, But verse uh, 23 through 28 to finish this out says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us and greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I love the end of this scripture because he really boils down to what it's about is that it's Jesus Christ himself who will sanctify us. We can't do this on our own. That's why so many of us struggle to be thankful. That's why so many of us struggle to have joy in our life and to pray without ceasing because we're trying to do it in our own strength. But he finishes this scripture with saying, it's not by our strength, it's not by our mind, it's not by our wisdom, but ultimately it's God himself who will sanctify us. It's God himself who will do what he's actually called us to do by empowering us with the Holy Spirit. So I just wanna encourage us as we go into this last time of worship, we have a new song that's a little bit slower paced that you can meditate on, you know, how are you doing in the area of thankfulness and the area of joy? I just want you to think about, I know for me, I think this is true in, in marriage, it's true in relationships, and it's specifically true with our relationship with Christ, is when we are not um, enjoying the person we're with or we're not enjoying God, we're probably not gonna be super thankful. We're probably not gonna have much joy in our life. And I gave this marriage analogy earlier of Christ coming like it's our wedding night of being united with that person you love. And just to think back on that, whether that was your wedding night or maybe you're single and you're waiting for that um, person to spend your life with that passion. And sometimes it's like, especially before you're married, it's like it can consume your mind. It's like all you're thinking about is finding that person who you're gonna spend your life with. If that's how much the return of Christ and that consummation with us in Christ should be on our mind when it comes to his return and that eternal perspective that can drive us to be rooted in truth, that can drive us to lead in love, and to love others, to love those who are leading us. Um, But ultimately in this season to be thankful and to find joy. And during the Christmas season, Thanksgiving season, um, there's a lot of uh, mental illness that heightens. There's a lot of addiction that heightens. Um, And that this is a really important time to focus on these things. And I just wanna extend the invitation that we're doing an outreach event on December 2nd and 3rd down on East Overland where we're having um, a Friday night and a Saturday morning to share tools and and biblical insight of how to combat uh, mental illness, how to combat addiction. Um, If that's something you'd struggle with, we'd love to have you um, be there and and, um, hopefully... Um, that will help you have more joy in Thanksgiving in your life, but also um, to come be available to pray with people. There's a lot of people in this community that are really hurting in this season. This is an opportunity where you can comfort those who are down, you can uphold the weak, and that you can warn those who have maybe become lax 